Well, you remember last week, we're now in chapter 6 where Jesus begins to give illustrations and characteristics to the kind of life we live. The Sermon on the Mount is a presentation of what life in Christ is to be like. And so you remember he gave, if you would, the moral characteristics of that life. Blessed are. And he went through those issues. And in chapter 6, he begins to talk about, you know, when you do your righteousness. Remember, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes, as he had said in chapter 5. And what was wrong with their righteousness, their righteous deeds on the outside? Wow, these men are holy. I mean, they pray more than I do. They give more than I do. They fast more than I do. Have any of you ever had those thoughts that you look at another person and you look at the deeds of the other person and evaluate and estimate to say, that person does more than I do. That person is in the Word. That person reads the Word much more than I do. Anybody, do we ever do this? We all, I don't say we all, but I think many of us do this too often. And so there's always a problem with that, but there's also a good thing in that. So we have to be careful of either side. But the problem with the Pharisees was that their deeds were promoted by or motivated by what? Self-aggrandizement. That you would look at me. Oh, what a man of God. I mean, this man, he does this and this and what an example. Oh, that was their motive. And because their motive was to receive the praise of men, the adulation of people, the elevation in the eyes of their flock, they were losing the reward of the approbation of God. Because you see, God approbates our good deeds. He approves of our good deeds. He is blessed by our good deeds. He is pleased with the way we live. He is pleased with us as his sons, and he is pleased with us as sons who obey. Everybody knows who have children that you love your children, but you also know that sometimes your children's actions can be a little displeasing to you, and some actions can be very pleasing to you, and that's how God is. And so Jesus is dealing with the issues of the heart in chapter 6, these first 18 verses of what? The heart, why do you what? Give. Why do you give and how do you give? To be noticed by God and to be approbated by him and to be a testimony of his righteousness or do you do it in a way that shines light on who you are? Their motive in prayer. Why do you pray the way you pray and when you pray and how you pray? And then their motive in fasting. And so you realize that last week we went through prayer pretty quickly because we left out what is called the Lord's Prayer, right? Verses, what are we verses today? 9 to 15, I think it is. And so today we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. Now this is going to be a very fast movement through the Lord's Prayer. And I just want to whet appetites. And it's not going to be in great detail in any particular area. But it's going to go through it pretty quickly. As I said, I may make more uh, comments about one particular area than others. So hang on as we go through this. Father, 
Father, once again, when we see and understand and experience you in your word by the revelation work of the Holy Spirit, Father, we stand amazed. Father, we stand amazed at a holy, holy, holy God would not only save sinners such as we, but, Father, that you would deposit your Holy Spirit in vessels that have been completely forgiven because the Holy Spirit will not live in an unforgiven vessel. And then living in us, Father, your holy, holy, holy spirit. Spirit of righteousness, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the living God. Now contends in us for the manifestation and the maturity of the righteousness with which you have given us in Christ. So that as we have put on Christ by being saved, we are now showing forth as we cooperate with your spirit what this new clothing in Christ looks like to the world. So that they may see the clothing, the brilliance, the glory of the new garments that we have that have been replaced, that have replaced the garments of filth. And yet, Father, as the Holy Spirit does this, how much forbearance, how much patience, how much kindness, how much gentleness, how much faithfulness, how much joy. Father, how much love are you exercising? Father, cause us to remember this continually. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we begin with the Lord's Prayer, and we call it the Lord's Prayer, and that's typically how it's called. But obviously it's, it's not the Lord's Prayer, because that prayer that Jesus prays is in John 17. But this is much more of a pattern of prayer. So what we want to look at is are the various elements that should be contained in our praying. Now when I say that, we don't believe that the elements of the prayer that are contained in this prayer, if you don't say one today, if you forget one, God doesn't, that doesn't count. We're not saying that. But basically, overall, in our praying, overall, basically, in our praying, our prayers should generally contain these elements. And so you may be praying at a particular time for a particular issue and not have a, an aspect or two in that. That's okay. But what we don't want, what Jesus doesn't want us to have is a forgetting or a non-dealing with or a non-expression of any particular element on a continual basis. And so don't get into the religious habit of when I pray, I have to say this and then I have to say that and I have to say the other and so on. This is a construct. No, it is a pattern of prayer. These are the basic elements. And in this order, perhaps, and sometimes it may not be, but at least overall, this is what our prayer life would be looking like. And so in verses 9 to 10, 
Jesus is going to start with the focus of where it needs to be. All our praying needs to be built on the focus of whom? God himself. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In these two verses... Jesus sets forth, in my estimation, you may find it different than this, four fundamental truths about God and in his relationship to us that are to inform our prayers. Sorry, I should not have said in my estimation. I should have said in what I believe the Holy Spirit has shown me. I don't like to say in my estimation. I have no estimation intrinsically. It's hopefully how the Holy Spirit has shown me that there are four issues here that Jesus is emphasizing. The person of God the place of God, the praise of God, and the petition to God. Those are just four things that that the Lord, I believe, has shown me. First, the person of God, our Father. Now, I know I skipped, you know, well, let me just go ahead. Our Father, verse 9. In Isaiah 63, 16, the Holy Spirit gives Isaiah this word. You, O Lord, Yahweh, are our Father. And so for the Jewish people... The understanding of God as Father was a generally a generic or national kind of a thought that Israel was birthed, if you would, into becoming a nation by God. And so as a general, as a national understanding, God was their Father. He was the one, in other words, who brought them into existence. And you remember, this is all codified and formalized at Sinai. And so in that respect, God is the father of a nation of people. But you see, even though that is the way they understood it, they would never ever have addressed God personally as father. This was absolutely alien to the way they understood God. They would have addressed him as Lord, you know, and and, and actually later on, the whole understanding of the use of the word Yahweh was dropped because it was too holy a name and they put Adonai in there and that's why you see Adonai in the uh, Hebrew text today when uh, the Jews are praying Adonai meaning it took the place of the word Yahweh because the name of Yahweh in their estimation was too holy so God was understood to be the father of Israel but he would never have been addressed on such a personal term however Jesus when he appears breaks the tradition And he begins to address God as my father 15 times in Matthew and 21 times in John. This is scandalous. When the Jews heard, especially when the religious leaders and the Pharisees heard Jesus say, my father, it's like, oh my gosh, look at what he's doing. He's, this is part of the blasphemy thing. He's bringing God, the high, exalted, transcendent Lord of glory, down to a very personal level as a human father. And they thought this was a blasphemous thing to do. But by telling the disciples to address God as father, Jesus is insisting that they have the unique and greatest privilege of enjoying the presence of a personal God because they have become children of God. If there's one term that should absolutely cause us to catch our breath, to be breathtaking when it comes to the faith, if there's one term 
just one word that should be breathtaking, I think overcoming all the other terms and words of the gospel, what would it be? Father. Father. Now think about it. God is our Father. Of all the terms, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father in a general sense, Prince of Peace, you know, the Counselor, the Helper, the Savior, all of that, all of those magnificent terms and names and appellations are for one purpose. The entire incarnation for one purpose. The entire creation for one purpose. One purpose. That this majestic, glorious, magnificent, transcendent God of glory is now my Father, your Father. This is the most, in my mind, startling and revelatory issue of the gospel. Father. I know you're going to say, well, the most revelatory is the cross. No. The cross is the means to get to the most revelatory way. That in this term, Father, we are fully, forever accepted and forgiven. Because we're forgiven. Because of the word. You see, the word Father, the name Father, it's just not a word, the name Father brings together and concludes all of the gospel. All of it. So whatever God has accomplished and will continue to accomplish in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his son dying on the cross, being buried, being raised, being Ascended, being exalted, having been given all authority in heaven and earth, in sending the Holy Spirit, in returning one day to collect the church, so all of us once and forever will be before the throne and live in the presence of God who is our Father. It is to me the most incredible name that has been named. I know Jesus is the name above all names. Yes, it is. But he was named Jesus for the purpose of bringing us to God as God's children. The Father. God our Father. There's a huge amount of revelation and understanding in that. Also, that as sons of God... They, we, have become Jesus' brethren. We are now brothers and sisters with Christ in Christ who have been joined into a spiritual community that is to image God's heavenly community. That as sons of the Father, we are to enjoy his love by walking with him in dependent obedience. It's so much. But one caveat I must mention, and I really hope to get through this today, is that it is, 
is important that we not make God our Father too familiar. Why? Our Father, collectively, individually, collectively. You notice Jesus doesn't say, my Father, when we pray. It's our Father. In order to protect us from becoming too familiar with God and bringing this God, who is our Father, down to a teddy bear kind of revelation, to a teddy bear revelation, our Father what? Who are in heaven. You see, he is both absolutely other than transcendent and exalted, yet at the same time he is most immediate and personal. Do we see that? But we must keep the two in balance, and we must remember that in his exaltation and high and lifted up, he is as immediate and personal. And we don't want to, and we're not allowed to, make one issue or one truth more than the other truth. We have to be very careful of how we term God and how we relate to God. He's not our teddy bear. He is the exalted Lord of glory. And we must keep him that way in our understanding because that's who he is. As we relate to him as Father, Father, we must hold him as both intimate and holy. We must be careful. Third, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. What is the name? Remember when Moses is standing face to face with the burning bush and speaking with the Lord of glory himself, Yahweh. And the Lord has told Moses, I'm sending you as my instrument to set my people free. Remember that? I'm sure you saw the movie. You remember it. And Moses asked what question? He didn't say, what weapons am I going to have? He didn't say, how many chariots you got? How many swords you done made? You know, how are we going to do? He says, what? What name shall I give to the people? What is your name? Why does Moses ask that? Because you see, in the understanding in those days, the name encapsulated the character, the purpose, and the power of the deity, the ability of the deity, the purpose, the power, the character, the ability of the deity. And so Moses is asking, you are a God. He's beginning, I think, to understand he is the only God, but he certainly knows this is a God. But you see, I've lived among a people and were raised where there were many gods. And the gods of Egypt the, them's powerful gods. How do we know that? Because look at what they have done. All the land that they have conquered and the subjugation and the empire. These gods of those, the gods of those people of that nation are great and glorious. They, they strong. They big gods. Who are you? Are you greater? How can we trust you? What is your purpose? How are you going to do this? I'm a shepherd. I got a stick in my hand. He says, tell them that I am, have sent you. 
Oh, okay. Yahweh. So he goes before the people. Hey, God has said, oh God, what? which God? Who? What's the name? They're living in a polytheistic world, uh, world, literally. They understand something about the biblical God of Abraham, but they also understand this. So is this God of Abraham one of many? Well, you know, it could be. It's just our God in, the, in Goshen where we live. And then the, when you cross the border, you get into the gods of the other people. You know how that works, don't you? What's his name? Yah. I am. Oh, that's different. I am what? I'm a crocodile. I'm the Nile River. I'm a bird. I'm the sun. I'm the moon. No, I am. I am the only and eternally self-existent God. Oh, my word, that's unique. That's very unique. And God began to demonstrate his I amness through ten victories over Egypt's polytheistic false religion. And for eight months, he tore down the lie of Satan that had been resurrected and created in Egypt. Who are you? What's your name? What's your name? Who is God to us? Who is Father to us? Who is Jesus to me today? Hallowed be thy name, thy name to be reverence and to praise. And so what at the name of Jesus... What verse is that? That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Kurios, which means the undisputed master and, you know, king and Lord. What verse did I just quote? Philippians what? 2 verse 9, 10, 11. Remember, there, wherefore also God has exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, we're to hallow his name. Oh, I hallow his name. I come into church on Sunday morning. I'm not being critical, nor am I being facetious here. I really mean that. I come into church on Sunday morning. I'm very careful when we begin to sing. I, I want to be careful about how I do that. I, I want to be careful to maybe raise my hand just as a physical demonstration of God is high and exalted. It's okay to do that. If you feel led to do it, it's okay not to do it. If you don't feel led to do it, it there's a Pentecost. We're a Pentecostal church, so we give you freedom in this area. You may raise a hand, you may not. Some people may kneel, some, whatever. However God leads you to worship, we worship him. We hold his name hallowed. Reverence. But that's not the primary way we worship and hallow him, is it? What does Ephesians 4.1 say? I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you have been called. That's where we keep God holy and hallow his name. We don't want to relegate it to a outward manifestation of singing and rejoicing and whatever. We want to make sure that our entire life as image bearers hallows reverences, causes to be declared as holy and wonderful, this God of ours. Is my life doing that? Well, in some areas, yes, and in some areas, no. But isn't it amazing that this God who is so high and lifted up and holy, 
continues to contend with us in a kind and loving way, even in the midst when I am not holding him holy, not allowing me to get away with that, but correcting and disciplining me and touching me and reminding me and sending folks into my life and, you know, as I read the word or whatever, however he does it. Slowly conforming us into the image of his holy son, Romans 8, 29. And so as a result of that, what is my petition to God? Knowing who you are, you are my father, intimate yet exalted. You are the one whose name, whose person, whose character, whose purpose whose power is exceedingly, incredibly beyond anything we can ever think or imagine. We hold your name high and lift it up in my daily life. In relation to who this God is, Father, I pray that your kingdom will come on earth and be manifested on earth and will rule and control on earth as it already is doing in heaven. The rule of God. The leadership of God. The ministry of God. In heaven. Heaven, the place of the glory of God, where everything is according to God's will. The place where everything is according to God's will and purpose is in heaven. That's the only place. Is it a place? Well, I think it is. Because Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, what does it look like in all the details? I don't know. I can read just like you can. We've given a few glimpses here and there, but I certainly don't know very much beyond that. Actually, I don't know anything beyond that. What am I saying? Nothing beyond that. But you see, we're asking for God's rule to come into the earth in a general way. Not for the purpose of kill them all. Get rid of them all. But for the purpose of God's creative design to be accomplished. What do you see when you see thy kingdom come? What verse do you hear in that? (laughs) <laughs> Genesis one twenty six. we have been created in the image of God, and then Genesis one twenty eight. what? Go and what? Subdue and rule and fill the earth. Do you see it? Fill the earth. And so what Jesus is praying for is that God's Genesis creative purpose is to be fulfilled on the earth that God has created. Now, will it be fulfilled on this terrestrial ball at this time under this condition? No. There will be what? A new heaven and a new earth. So what we're asking for is that the gospel will continue to move forward in the earth and in me and through me and us as a consequence and as God's means of bringing it into the earth. But we also know that as we pray for that, that means that this old earth, under the curse and condemnation of God because of sin, will have to be done away with one day in order for God's kingdom to become fully, expressively, etc. on the new earth. Amen? We know what we're praying for. And so we're praying for two things, that God's kingdom will come upon the earth to the place that finally 
I believe this is what holds Jesus back from returning. The last person to be brought into the kingdom of God. The final brick into the building. Now the building is complete. Now the king may come and reside in his building. The last brick. Why do I call us bricks? Somebody call us what? Living what? So we're living brickheads. We're a bunch of bricks. It's okay to be called a brickhead. So somebody calls you and hey, hey, I, I, I read that in First Peter 2. I know I'm a brickhead. Thank God I'm a brickhead. What you mean? Why are you so, uh, why, you know, you're weird too. Yes, I am a weird brickhead. And this brick house, this living house, this house of living stones is being constructed one stone at a time as a Holy Spirit births us into the kingdom, and we're birthed individually, but to be put into a living house of God, right? And as that happens, the numbers of stones that have been required from the very beginning of the construction, let's say 2,826,000 stones, I don't know, and it's one stone at a time, and every time someone is saved, it's one stone closer to getting to the final stone. And when the final stone is put in its place into this house of God, that, I believe, will be the announcement now, now. My house is ready. Now I'm coming back. So I don't pray for, you know, Israel to do this or the Arabs to do that or the Republicans to do that or the Democrats to do that or the financiers to do that. I pray this, Father, bring about that last living stone. Because I believe there's nothing on earth that has anything to do with the return of Jesus other than that. Other things may manifest it, but that is a requirement. Amen? You see, there's a whole lot of stuff we think are required, but not as required as we may think this is required. This contractor, this builder, will 100% complete his building so that his house is filled. His banquet table is filled so there won't be a vacant seat at the table of God. I think that's good news. And we're asking for God's rule to not only be manifested in us, in our walk, but to be maturing in us. Man is the focus in verses 11 to 13. Now, Jesus now instructs the disciples to pray for three interconnected needs. I don't want you to see this. Sorry. I don't believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see these as three individual unconnected needs. I don't know. I probably wrote and rewrote this verse, this one statement, literally 15 times before I hope, I feel, I think I have what the Holy Spirit wants me to say. Some terms I struggle with because I get myself in them. And so I struggle and struggle until I hope I have heard as clearly as I can be, uh, can be hearing what God wants me to say. So now Jesus instructs the disciples to pray for three, and I know even this isn't a perfect statement, but three interconnected needs. I want us, to, Holy Spirit wants us to see this, that these three petitions are very important. They are a flow not three things, but they are a flow of one petition. A flow of one petition of how we as kingdom members, as those in whom the kingdom is, has come and is still coming as a developmental thing, how we are to live in connection with receiving the kingdom and maturing in the kingdom. Do we see that? 
That's what I think these three petitions are about, rather than just three things. We need to be praying for God's daily provision, his relational provision, and his protection. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. I'm going to go through this quickly. I think we know what this means. The daily bread. Remember the bread in the wilderness? Remember the, uh, um, um, Exodus 16, it starts, and it continues all the way through until the people get into the, um, the promised land. They cross the Jordan, and then the bread stops. Remember that? It stopped. It stopped. Once they got into the promised land, no more bread. God fed them. What was the bread? Deuteronomy 8.3. What is that? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. And so the bread here that Israel was receiving was certainly the manna, but it was representative of the spiritual bread that God will feed each one of us. What we're asking for here is, and what the Holy Spirit wants us to ask for is regularly seek the bread of God's presence and of his spiritual nourishment by the Spirit. Read the word of God regularly. Yes. Without that bread, we will spiritually be debilitated. We will begin to wither. I'm not saying you're going to go to hell and lose your salvation, but we will wither spiritually. Now, just reading the word doesn't guarantee anything. It's reading the word as a work of grace, receiving it from the Holy Spirit's hand of goodness and mercy, and acknowledging it and seeking to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he gives us revelation in the bread. Just to say, I'm reading my word, I'm reading my word, and I know that if I read 10 chapters a day, I'm going to grow whatever. No, it is submitting to the work of his spirit and feeding us with thankfulness. Jesus is the bread of life. And so in partaking of our daily bread, and how what, what bread? Daily. Now, does that mean if I forgot or I didn't get a chance to read my Bible yesterday, I'm all over, I'm finished. What I tell people in my office or suggest to them, sorry, I don't tell them, I suggest to them, if they have not been regular in their word, I would say that if you're able to regularly read, and by that, at least four or five days a week, start with that and ask the Holy Spirit to make you regular then you're going to be fed by the word. I wouldn't say to someone, well, you have to do it seven days a week in order to be regular. But we want to begin to build a systematic spiritual habit. Hopefully everyone in here, you, we are all taking a daily dose, if you would, of the word of God. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God's relational provision Jesus now turns his attention to their primary need, which is addressed by the bread. What is the primary revelation and work of the word in our lives? What is that work which was so fundamental that without it we could never have become the children of God? What is that work? What is the primary work, the most basic issue that Jesus accomplished at the cross in the atonement? Our forgiveness. Forgiveness is the only means of our entering the kingdom of God. 
Forgiveness or unforgiveness was the only thing that kept us out of the kingdom of God. Forgiveness is the central issue that occurs on the cross as to our ability to be brought into the presence of God. We must be forgiven. Our forgiveness is the only reason we're saved. What does 1 John 1, 7 say? The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from almost all. Most. I hope it's going to be all. How much? All our sin. Friends in Christ, if you are forgiven, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you're forgiven. Because God does not live in an unforgiven vessel. If we are forgiven... I've said this many times before, and I want to make sure we see it. That forgiveness goes back to our inception in the womb. Because we were born, what? By nature as children of wrath. Where does that come from? Ephesians 2, 3. We were by nature children of wrath. In the womb, the moment you're conceived... All the way, however many years and through whatever you have gotten there, to the moment you breathe your last breath. God collects all that we are and all that we ever have been and ever have done and will do up to that point. And places how much of it on the, cro- on the shoulders of Jesus, this great Shechem, this burden bearer, the Shechem of God. How much does he place on the shoulders of this great Shechem? All of it. All of it. You see, God knows absolutely everything about us. And everything that he knows, he forgives. He knows how much about us? Everything. And everything he knows, he what? Forgives. I've asked people before, are you satisfied or feel good about God knowing everything about you? No. Well, come on. Because if there's something he doesn't know and it includes unforgiveness, you, you can't come in. He knows how much about us? Everything. And yet what? We're forgiven. Now, What does forgiveness mean? It has to do with a lot of things, but mostly it has to do with holding on to sin. Holding on to that which has been done against me or against you. Our sin was against God. And what God did at the cross, he placed his wrath of our sin, against our sin, on Jesus. So what? So now Jeremiah 31 uh oh, there goes my 34. Says what? Their sins and their trespasses I will remember against them no more. God no longer holds on to any grudges against us. God no longer holds on to any ill will against us. God no longer remembers in a detrimental, hurt way what we were and what we did. God moves toward us, attitudes toward us, actions toward us, as if we had never sinned. Now, you see, this is a struggle. Because when someone does something that I know is wrong, or I perceive is wrong, I get upset. 
I'm the only one. I get upset. I begin to have an attitude. My thoughts begin to go places. I begin to build and create and construct something in my own mind about that person. Did any of you hear something in yourself? I begin to think unloving thoughts and begin to harbor ungodly attitudes about that other person. I begin not to relate to the other person as God relates to me. I begin to put up a wall, one brick at a time, one thought, one attitude at a time. I'm not talking this generically. I'm talking about this personally. I'm talking about me, Peter Davidson. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. When I say I, I really mean this I. That's why I can tell you this, because I know how it is. Now, you may find yourself in this. And so the question here is this. God has forgiven me of what? Of you have what? The most evil and wicked deeds. And yet it comes to someone in my life. And they may be real things that person has done or they have done. They have said real things or perceived. Misunderstood. And I begin to defend myself and begin to shoot arrows of attitudes against that other person. And how do I know whether I release that person from this issue? In other words, I pronounce, look, I forgive you. Well, I didn't do anything. I I know, but I still need to forgive you. I need to decide to be released from this shackle of sin. I need to be released from it. And how do I know that I've been released or at least hopefully am being released because sometimes being released is an immediate thing. Sometimes it's a progressive thing as God begins to slowly take the chains off and some chains he breaks immediately. How do I feel about that person when I see that person, hear that person, someone approbates that person, you know, approves of that person and... What do I feel inside me? (laughs) Yeah, but you see, you don't know that. Uh, Yeah, but that's fine for you to say, but I have issues with that in me. I'm a human being. Now, if you have a problem with me feeling this way, I'm a human being. And God is still at work in this old man who is 73 years old and who is still at, he's still at work in this old buzzard. Still at work. It's been taking a long time. And it will continue to work until I leave this planet. Forgiveness. So I ask you today, because I've had to struggle with this. This has been a struggle. It's been a fight. It's the biggest fight that I ever fight at any time in my life over any issue is the issue of forgiveness. Why? Because you see, it's Satan's scheme. 2 Corinthians 2.11. I think it's 2.11. To hold us shackled to our sin through unforgiveness. Doesn't matter in, in a forgiveness sort of a way. 
what the person has done or you think he or she has done. We are those for whom God has forgiven everything and we are called to honor this God and not to dishonor and pollute his forgiveness of us by entering into a decision to release that person's sin from clutching us anymore. It's tough. Anybody in here have struggles or ever have had a struggle with forgiveness? I'm raising my hand first. And if you don't have a struggle, may I, in a very kind way, saying you're lying to yourself and being deceived. You're being deceived. Why? Every one of us. Every one of us. Why? Because you see, we're all clothed with the same problem. We're human beings. I wanted to say so much, much more, but let me look at my notes just for a moment. There's nothing more destructive to the revelation of God's grace in us than unforgiveness. Adultery is not as destructive. Homosexuality is not as destructive. Stealing is not as destructive. In Romans, I think it's Romans chapter 2, Paul begins to give a list of the sins in a declining order. And at the end of them, if you will go to the Greek, because some of the modern translations have changed the word, it's unmerciful. No forgiveness. It's the most destructive issue to our relationship with God and to one another that exists in our lives. It is the capstone issue. Unforgiveness. And I have to be aware of it and fight, if you excuse my words, fight like hell. Not to allow Satan's scheme to capture my heart in this area. Jesus said to the disciples in John 13, you've been clean by my word, but you need to have your feet washed. I need to regularly wash the feet of my attitude of others through forgiving, through forgiving. Otherwise, I will get stuck in this mud and can't go any further. I will be a child of God stuck in the mud of unforgiveness. And by doing that, I say, this is how Jesus is. Lead us not to temptation. Let me just quickly say this. He's asking us, he's telling us, ask to be protected from Satan's tempting us not to forgive. Ask to be delivered from this scheme. Ask to be not falling for this scheme. Deliver me from this scheme of Satan. And then in verses 14 and 15, I think he recapitulates what he's just said. So next week we'll continue with, what, verse 16, is it? Amen. Thank you.